Good morning. I'd like to uh, extend a special welcome to uh, those members of the Board of Trustees who are here with us. Uh, we're grateful that you're here this weekend. Um, thank you for uh, walking alongside us and leading us well as a college. Um, that song was particularly uh, kind of poignant this morning. Uh, that, that reality that the world tries to satisfy our hearts and the, the reality also that uh, my heart is so inclined to try to be satisfied by the things of the world. Um, our passage this morning talks a bit about that. It talks about a world full of darkness and light. And when we think about those things, when we think about darkness and light, we can think on a very practical level, right? We can think, you know, darkness, um, you know, a room without light in it, and you can think light, you know, a match is struck in there, and you have this very tangible, very real darkness and light. Um, but I think we also feel it internally, right? We, we feel the internal struggle with darkness um, and light, the darkness of temptation and sin, um, the light of, of rejoicing and unspeakable joy. Um, but as I was thinking about light and darkness this week, I was thinking kind of of my life of times where, where those have become really just really poignantly clear to me. And um, thinking of light, uh, the thing that I thought of was the birth of my daughters. Um, watching this miracle of God take place where um, my wife gave birth to my daughters and they, they come out and they're their eyes are, are open and alive with the light of life. And I think there's, there's light. And then darkness on, on sort of the other side of the spectrum. Um, my very first uh, pastorate in Boston, I did my first funeral about three weeks into, the, into my ministry there. And um, in Boston, it's, it's common practice to have viewings. So you, you go to the wake or the viewing and the, the casket is open. And, um, I, I didn't know the person in life, but I went and I looked on him in death, and there was no life. It was just a shell of a human being. And I made it a practice every funeral that I did to go and look, to be reminded of, of this balance of life and light and darkness and death. And that's the context that Jesus walks into in John chapter 11. I know a number of you did Bible studies last night around campus um, on the resurrection of Lazarus. Um, but in John chapter 11, Jesus walks into a situation of death in order to display the glory of God. His friend Lazarus has been dead for four days, and Jesus and the disciples, they arrive in Bethany while his family is in the process of mourning. And he tells them, remove the stone. Take the stone away from the grave so you'll see the glory of God. And they're, of course, reluctant to do it because it's going to smell like rotting flesh. But roll the stone away, and they do. They roll the stone away from the grave. It's always good to picture what's actually happening there. You had your, your ancient tombs cut into stone, and, and the stone that's being rolled away is not like a big round boulder. It would have been more like a wheel that was in a rut, and the wheel is rolled over, and they roll it back. And as they roll it back, the darkness that's inside gives way to light. And the death that's inside is replaced by life as Jesus calls Lazarus' name. And the dead man walks out of the tomb from death to life, from darkness to light. And it prefigured what Jesus knew was his own path, prefigured what was coming prefigured his road to Jerusalem and the cross and the resurrection. But it was also the final piece of the puzzle that drove the Sanhedrin at the um, urging of Caiaphas, the high priest, convincing 
them that this one man should die for the whole nation. Because if he doesn't die, the whole nation... I don't know what just happened. <laughs> I kind of liked it. I feel like I'm supposed to do that. <laughs> uh, where were we? Oh, yeah. So Caiaphas <laughs> has convinced the Sanhedrin that Jesus, that Jesus should actually be the one to die and that he, sh he should die in place of the entire Jewish nation, uh, foreshadowing and actually, actually prophesying that which is going to happen, but that which he doesn't know um, in totality. So Jesus, the word in flesh, the light come into the darkness, is now on his way to Jerusalem. His arguments with the Jews are over. His final and greatest miracle has taken place, and the cross is waiting for him. So he's on his way to Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem he's about to walk into is about to be 200,000 people, 150,000 more than is usually there, and they're coming for the Passover feast. And the word is going to be spread by the Sanhedrin, by the Pharisees, uh, by the high priests, that anybody that sees Jesus is to inform the authorities so that he can be arrested. And now we walk into John chapter 12, but before we do, can we just pray for a moment? Uh, gracious God, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that it is living, that it transforms us. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us in it and through it. I pray, Lord, that the words spoken this morning that are mine would fall from my lips like ashes, and the words that are yours would penetrate into the hearts of all of us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Scripture says that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table. So six days before the Passover, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. He's on his way to the darkness that will seemingly overcome the light. But he stops in Bethany to see his friends, and we don't want to gloss over what's happening there. He's on his way to suffering, but he stop, stops to be in community. He stops to be with people that he loved and to give them an opportunity to both celebrate and to worship. And so they do. They have a dinner in his honor. Martha is serving. Lazarus is alive and is reclined at the table, is eating with them. The dead man come back. God in flesh, Jesus, the Messiah, is eating a meal with them. And he calls them friends. And the weight is not lost on Mary. How very surreal and beautiful and wonderful and mysterious this whole party, this whole celebration must have been. And she, she can't not do something. What's happening inside of her literally bursts forth into action. And I tried to think of, of some kind of a parallel to do it. And the first thing that came to mind was this video. We're going to watch just a few seconds of this video. Some of you have probably seen it, but if not, watch this.
You know that feeling, right? Where what's going on inside is so big, you don't know what to do with it, but it's coming out. And for a little one, it comes out just so beautifully and authentically. Um, I think we should do that more often. But, uh, but Mary, I think Mary's in the same place. She's so overwhelmed with joy and love and gratitude. And here's what she does. She takes about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she pours it on Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. She couldn't not do something, and she worships. She takes this expensive perfume. It's worth a year's wages. When you think about that, don't let that pass us by. It's so valuable. But in her worship, it makes perfect sense to take that most valuable thing, maybe, maybe the most valuable thing she owns, and she brings it to the Lord. She brings it to Jesus. And she sits down next to him. She sits down by his feet. And they would have reclined feet outwards with the table in the middle. So she sits back and she begins to pour this perfume on his feet. And apparently she got too much or it started to run off. And instead of like running to get a towel or she lets her hair down. And act both humble and beautiful and intimate and begins to wipe the perfume with her hair. Letting her hair down is something that women didn't do in the ancient Near East. Extravagant worship. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now when you think about fragrances and when you think about scents and when you think about um, this picture, I want you to think back to the last scent that John gave us. In John chapter 11, when he talks about rolling the stone away from the tomb, they're afraid and they're honest. They're like, Lord, really? If you roll it away, it's going to smell. And for those of you who've ever smelled rotting flesh or who have smelled uh, even a skunk that gets caught underneath your car, that gets stuck in your nose and it doesn't go away for a while. And you can try to smell good things to make it go away, but it doesn't. It sits there. This is different. The stench of death, life has begun to replace it. Now they're celebrating. And the fragrance of her worship fills the place pushes out the memory and the stench of death, pushes out the darkness. And I think that's a beautiful sort of divine commentary that, that John and God gives us on what's happening to her. Her act of love fills this house with the fragrance of the worship of the living God. So we have this beautiful picture of worship and of love, right? Um, but before, what, before we look at what happens next, we started talking about darkness and light, and that's a theme that's run through the book of John. Jesus has come as light into this world of darkness. Scripture tells us that some will follow him and walk in light. Others will continue to love darkness. And in Mary and Judas, you see this light and darkness, choices personified. The light of Mary's worship is about to be matched by the darkness of Judas's selfishness. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. So we picture the scene, right? Jesus is reclining at the table with uh, Lazarus is there. They're being served. There's a party. It's a celebration. 
And Mary, in worship, comes and, and kneels down and begins to wipe Jesus' feet. And it, it could have, this extravagance of her worship could have raised a few eyebrows. She's sitting at his feet, which is what only disciples usually did with a rabbi. She lets down her hair, which is a, a breaking a cultural norm. And it could have been a time where people were sort of stopped and watching what's happening. And someone could have said something. And Jesus, Judas, does say something. But it's not about her hair. It's not about where she's sitting at his feet as a disciple. It's about the value of the perfume that she used. And what he said, I want you to hear this, might sound really good. It was, your, it was worth a year's wages, so it's worth a lot of money. Passover is coming up, and part of Passover was an opportunity to give to the poor. So it appears that Judas is, is bringing up this really like spiritual question, right? Why wasn't this taken and something even better and more spiritual done with it? But before we answer that, we want to make sure we understand exactly who Judas is and what his heart is actually doing. Verse 6 says that he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He was greedy. He'd chosen darkness, and he disguises his darkness as light. But even though the darkness is disguised as light, it still could have sounded good, right? It probably sounded logical, practical, even spiritual. He, he's making her worship look wasteful. He attributes darkness to her worship and calls his darkness of greed light. But then Jesus weighs in. You can imagine the setting. You can imagine her doing this act, him asking the question, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? And Jesus answers, leave her alone. Jesus replied, she is right to worship me. And then he addresses the reality of the situation. Judas has deceitfully brought up the poor. Jesus honestly tells them the truth of what's upon them. She is right to worship me. She is right to worship me extravagantly, honestly, in gratitude and in love, not least because of what is before me now. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, the translation on that's a little bit interesting. It could go one of two ways. It could actually be translated, should she have saved it for the day of my burial? Or it could stay, it was intended for the day of my burial. Either way, here's the point that Jesus is making. Jesus is saying that my death and my burial are now upon us. That is where I am now headed. It is here, and it is happening. She was absolutely right to worship me extravagantly and beautifully and joyfully in gratitude. My death and my burial are now sure. I'm headed to Jerusalem and I will go to the cross. What she do has done is right. She has worshiped me in light. The poor, you will always have the poor with you. You will always have the poor to give to and to minister to and to love but I will not be with you much longer. Meanwhile, John says, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, 
for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The crowds have now found Jesus. The Jewish leaders are ready and steeled to kill him. And now Lazarus' life is in jeopardy as well. Darkness will have a say before the light of Jesus' resurrection on that final day. So we pull back for just a moment and we see these two examples. One loving light and one loving darkness. And we're reminded that we as human beings are made in the image of God. We are created with hearts that are made to love. And love they will. They'll love creation, love one another, love good chocolate, love surprises, yeah? Um, But a question that we need to ask ourselves, not just once, but over and over is, what is the supreme love of your heart? Because it matters. In a world of exceeding beauty, of heartbreaking sadness, of unspeakable joy, and heart-wrenching tragedy, our supreme love is the most important thing. And here's why. The reason our supreme love is the most important thing is because our supreme love is that which we will worship. The thing that we most love with our hearts is the thing that we will worship with our lives. And there are two options. You will worship one of these two. You will worship self or you will worship God. You will love self above all else or you will love God above all else. And only one of those two is worthy of your love. Only one of those two is worthy of your worship. That is darkness and light. That is Judas and Mary. It's you and it's me. It's living versus surviving. It's the stench of the grave versus the fragrance of worship. Judas masqueraded his darkness as light. That's what Satan does. It's what the world does. It's what everything calls us to do. But don't buy it. Don't buy it, for that is darkness and death. That is the grave, and it is not the light of life. Search your heart. Give it to the one who offers life and light. But here's the thing. Don't love God and give him your heart because you're being told to. Don't do it because it's the right thing to do. We do it because he first loved us. A couple of weeks, we'll celebrate Good Friday, we'll celebrate Easter, we'll celebrate where light is snuffed out, as goes to the grave, only to explode from the grave in resurrection power. In every step along the way to the cross, we are reminded that Jesus Christ never chose self. He never chose darkness always chose light and love. And if we return that question around just a little bit, that question about supreme love, what is the supreme love of your heart? And you say self or God. If we ask Jesus, what is the supreme love of your heart? Do you know what he would answer? You're asking the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the cosmos into existence, 
What is your supreme love? Do you know what he would say? He would sing your name. He loved us, though we were enemies. He loved us enough to go to the cross in our place, to die a death we should have died, to pay a price we never could, to offer us the light of life. Let us pray that God will draw us close to himself. Let us search our hearts and make sure that our supreme loves are where they ought to be. Let us live instead of surviving. Let us walk in light instead of darkness. Let us know life instead of the grave. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, Lord, we thank you for the salvation that you give us. We thank you that it comes by virtue of your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that by your spirit you call us to yourself, that you make us alive and I pray, Father, that you would give us hearts that would never rest in anything apart from you. Father, be with us this day. I pray that you will draw us close to you and we will know your presence. By the power of your spirit and in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.